Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 40 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. In recent episodes, we've been looking at the six-stage story process. And in this episode, we're going to continue to explore the third of those six stages, what I call the momentum stage, which is the one between the inciting incident and the crisis of the story. And if you're new to the podcast or you're unfamiliar with the six-stage story process, you might want to go back and start with episode 36 and work your way through to this episode from there. In episode 39, I started to look at this third stage and we explored the fact that this stage relies on building a progression of challenges for your characters and revealing character through creating tension and gradually building everything towards the climax and really focusing on giving your story a big engine, which is going to drive the thing through and keep your readers with you. But there is so much more that you can do during this stage of the story. And in a way, this episode is a kind of microcosm of some of the dimensions that I'm going to be gradually working through in the coming months on the podcast. And the dimensions I'm going to be particularly focusing on today are character, setting, theme and voice, and especially character from all of those four. I'll be exploring them in much more detail in future episodes, but we'll have a quick look today at each of them and specifically the kinds of things that you can do with them during this stage. So let's start with character. And I'm talking here about your main characters. You've got the broad expanse of your story opening up in front of you. And great characters are going to be a big part in writing a great story. So how could you create these kind of characters? Well, if you think back across the great characters in literature that you've come across, you can ask yourself this question, what makes them stand out? And I would suggest that there are perhaps four aspects that you can work on, all of which you can attend to at this stage of the story. These don't represent everything that you can do with character. There's a lot that you have to get right at the very beginning of your story, for example. But these four areas are where you can grow and mature your characters. So the first one is this. Your main characters must have complexity. Readers need to sense the internal tensions, the subtleties and the nuances in this character and also see the different facets to them as they deal with different situations. Indeed part of the development of your main characters will come especially in this stage of the story as the reader sees them reacting to different situations and engaging with other characters around them. In her book Dynamic Characters Nancy Cress says this, Major characters need to participate in many different events. To do so believably, they need to have enough complexity so that readers can accept them in these multiple roles. So let's look at one example. If we take Sam Gamgee from The Lord of the Rings, Frodo's dependable, good-hearted companion for the journey across Mordor. If Sam were just a good-natured but dim gardening hobbit, we wouldn't think much of him as a character, but there are so many other facets to him. He's incredibly loyal, of course, in his service to Frodo. He's courageous, not just as he faces the foes they encounter, but the psychological trauma of leaving his beloved Shire. He has a deep appreciation of the countryside, the rhythm of life and the land. He can sometimes be angry, he can even be jealous, especially in his relationship with Gollum. And he has, as well, under all of that, an insatiable curiosity. He eavesdrops on Gandalf and Frodo's conversation. He eavesdrops on the conversation at the council at Rivendell. So there is so much more to Sam than just some bumbling gardening hobbit. And we see these facets as the story unfolds. But when we come to the second point, there's almost a contradiction here because as well as having these many different facets, great characters also have a central core, a cohesion that drives how they react to the world, a single point of personality. So we feel as if we instinctively know Sam Gamgee when we meet him. 
Great characters are the kinds of characters who, when you encounter them in literature, you know them. You know who they are. It doesn't mean that they are thinly drawn. It doesn't mean that they're going to only react in one way. But they have this central core, which the reader can identify with. And if your character has this cohesion and consistency, your reader will feel secure with them, will know who they are and generally how they're going to react. And this is something that you can start to build on at the beginning of the story, but that can mature during this third stage. Now, why does this matter? It matters because this is the way to make readers care about characters. And if not care about them, at least empathise with them. And this applies, of course, to your antagonist as well as your protagonist. Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter series fascinates us. We see how he has become who he is. We see why he is how he is. It doesn't mean we'd sympathise with him particularly, but at least we have an understanding of him. The third area in which character can be developed during this stage of the story is what I call agency and journey. Give your lead characters agency. Now, this is a complex and subtle concept. At its most basic level, it means that the characters can make choices, weigh factors, be tempted, be swayed in different directions, and then come to a conclusion. And to go through this process is a feature of being human. So when your characters do it, they demonstrate evidence of their humanity to the reader. But the concept is also bound up with moral choice and independence and interdependence. For example, again from The Lord of the Rings, when Arwen chooses Aragorn as her partner, that choice really makes her as a character because we see in it the agency that she has exercised to come to that decision. She knows he's mortal. She knows that she will outlive him many times over. She weighs up the pros and cons and she makes her decision. So even though ironically she's an elf, we feel engaged with her. We feel empathy towards her because she is showing some level of humanity in this. When Harry Potter chooses a path that he believes will lead to his death, he does so willingly and consciously. He exercises agency. He balances up the pros and cons. And when we as readers see a character exercising agency, we will empathise with them. We will engage with them at some level, even if they are the antagonist, even if they are, as it were, the bad guys. And bound up with agency as well is the journey of the character. Characters need to have time in the story for those choices to present themselves, for us to understand who the character is, for us to understand what's at stake in the decision that they're making. And that space, that breadth comes in the third stage of story. In The Wizard of Oz, for example, we don't appreciate how important it is for the lion to act with courage without seeing him being cowardly in the earlier parts of the story. In Pride and Prejudice, for example, Elizabeth and Darcy have to go on a journey to be able to exercise the agency to choose each other and to love each other. So the fourth of the four areas I want to focus on in this episode around character is what I call into the crucible. Character is revealed in tension, in pressure situations, in conflict. And the conflict can occur either within the character or as the character interacts with others. Characters are revealed by the way in which they deal with hard situations, not easy ones. In The Lord of the Rings, we see the vulnerability and weakness of Frodo as he simply can't bring himself to throw the ring into the cracks of doom. He's been incredibly courageous up to this point. He has achieved astonishing things. But in contrast to that, we see his weakness as he faces that last critical test. In the Harry Potter series, we see Harry face pressure situations again and again against Voldemort, with Draco, even with Ron and Hermione. And in those situations, we get an insight into who his character is. In my short story, Traveller's Blues, I'm trying to show the effect of a long period of confinement on the crew of the transport ship Valentine. These people are in close confinement with each other. They have pressures, they have cargo, they have responsibility. And in writing the story, I had to think about how this would impact on them, not just as a one-off, but over a long period of time. 
agency and journey come together in this aspect of developing character. You must give characters agency to show their humanity, to make choices, to weigh decisions. But that whole process is enriched and developed by presenting it over the length of the story. So now let's move on and have a look at setting. And there are a couple of points I want to make here. First, in this third stage of story, you have the space to allow setting and character to work together. Consider the character Fagin from Charles Dickens' novel Oliver Twist. Now, this character lives in a hideout which is near Clerkenwell Road in the centre of London, Victorian London. And here's a passage from Oliver Twist where Dickens first introduces us to Fagin. Note how he weaves together the setting in which Fagin appears with the character himself. Here's the passage. The walls and ceiling of the room were perfectly black with age and dirt. There was a deal table before the fire. Upon it were a candle stuck in a ginger beer bottle, two or three pewter pots, a loaf and butter and a plate. In a frying pan which was on the fire and which was secured to the mantel shelf by a string, some sausages were cooking and standing over them with a toasting fork in his hand was a very old shriveled Jew whose villainous looking and repulsive face was obscured by a quantity of matted red hair. He was dressed in a greasy flannel gown with his throat bare and seemed to be dividing his attention between the frying pan and the clothes horse over which a great number of silk handkerchiefs were hanging. Several rough beds made of old sacks were huddled side by side on the floor. Seated around the table were four or five boys, none older than Dodger, smoking long clay pipes and drinking spirits with the air of middle-aged men. And so we're introduced to this character, Fagin, who is in himself full of contradictions, as we shall find out. But he's placed into his own setting, this bizarre otherworldly place where young boys are sitting around smoking with long clay pipes and drinking spirits. And the combination of setting and character can be a very potent mix. It grabs the reader and it immerses them into the world of your story. To take an example from cinema, if you've seen the Star Wars films, you'll appreciate that Emperor Palpatine, or Darth Sidious as he, to use his Sith name, is immersed in the setting of the galactic capital, Coruscant, a vast urban planet. The setting and the character combine in a kind of synergistic relationship to enrich the story. The second point I want to make with setting is that in this third stage of story, you have the space to explore and develop the setting itself. For example, in Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca, the house, Mandalay, is practically a character in itself. It's a powerful setting and it's complemented and enhanced by its proximity to the sea. The house imposes itself in the book from the opening lines, which I've quoted a number of times in these podcasts. And the author describes aspects of the house and setting again and again throughout the book to enhance the mood and to act as a foil for the characters. So, for example, in this exchange between the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, and the narrator, the second Mrs. De Winter, we see Mrs. Danvers talking about the consequences of the death of the first Mrs. De Winter out at sea. One of the life boys was washed up at Kerith in the afternoon, she said, and another was found the next day by some crabbers on the rocks below the headland. Bits and pieces of rigging too would come in with the tide. She turned away from me and closed the chest of drawers. She straightened one of the pictures on the wall. She picked up a piece of fluff from the carpet. I stood watching her, not knowing what to do. You know now, she said, why Mr. De Winter does not use these rooms anymore. Listen to the sea. Even with the windows closed and the shutters fastened, I could hear it, a low, sullen murmur as the waves broke on the white shingle in the cove. The tide would be coming in fast now and running up the beach nearly to the stone cottage. Do you see there how Daphne du Maurier has taken the setting and enriched the story by using tiny little features, picking bits of fluff off the carpet, straightening a picture to grow her story? 
You can find a similar effect in George Orwell's book 1984, where Orwell uses the description of bizarre and oppressive aspects of the world in which the, the characters live to enrich the book. And now this brings us on to the third dimension I want to talk about, which is themes. And the issue with themes in any work is it's the nearest you can get without preaching to making your point to the reader. It might be a point about the existential nature of life. It might be a moral point. Whatever it is, the themes are your chance to make a point to your readers. But in the spirit of showing, not telling, the themes that are important to you in your work need to be shown to the reader. They won't be as powerful if you just say them outright. But if your reader believes in your story, in your plot, in your characters, in your setting, then they will believe more fully in the themes that you represent through the story that you're telling. For example, in the Harry Potter series, the author says very little about friendship and loyalty in the overt sense, but it's there throughout the whole series of books. It's a very important theme for J.K. Rowling. In Rebecca, the book I've already referred to, Mrs. Danvers' jealousy and obsession are not much referred to in an explicit way, but we see aspects of it in her and infer from this the view of the author that these are dangerous and toxic elements to character, dangerous for the person exhibiting them and dangerous for others around them. In Pride and Prejudice, it takes the whole of the story for us to come to the gradual realisation that love can overcome both pride and prejudice. That's the theme that Jane Austen wants us to understand. She doesn't say it overtly. She isn't explicit about it because she doesn't need to, because she has shown us. And the point is all the more powerful because of it. But all of this takes time. Theme needs to emerge gradually. And like the development of complexities and subtleties of character, theme needs time to mature. The theme of a book can only be supported by other aspects of it, and these need to be built. And so again, in your third stage of story, you have the time and space to do this. And so finally, we come to voice. And voice is the flavour of your work, the flavour of your writing. And whilst other dimensions develop and mature, voice needs to be distinctive and consistent. I used to think that voice was a relatively minor aspect of writing, but I've completely revised my view of this. And now I realise that it is actually critical. A few months ago, I interviewed Lee Harris, editor at Tor.com, and asked him what he looked for in a piece of fiction. His answer simply was voice. He believes that one of the main reasons, perhaps the main reason why people come back again and again to a piece of writing or to an author is because of their voice. And if you want to identify some distinctive voices, you could go and read a number of authors, for example, Hunter S. Thompson, Ernest Hemingway, China Mieville, Chuck Wendig. In fact, Wendig has written insightfully on the process of finding voice. In an interview, he said this, Every author decides to go on a grand adventure one day, and that grand adventure is to find her voice. She leaves the comfort of her own wordsmithy, and she traipses through many fictional works written by many writers, and along the way she pokes through their writings to see if her voice is in there somewhere. She takes what she reads, and she mimics their voices, taking little pieces of other authors with her, in her mind and on the page. Is her voice cynical? Is it optimistic? Short and curt, or long and breezy? She doesn't know and she reads and she writes and she lives life in an effort to find out. And this adventure takes as long as it takes, but one day the author tires of it and she comes home empty-handed, still uncertain of what her voice looks like or sounds like. And there, at home, she discovers her voice is waiting. In fact, it's been there all along. Your voice is how you write when you're not trying to find your voice. Your voice is the way you write, the way you talk. Your voice is who you are, what you believe, what themes you knowingly and unknowingly embrace. Your voice is you. Search for it and you won't find it. Stop looking and it will find you. 
and I'll be exploring voice in much greater detail in future episodes. But my aim here is to say two things. First, voice is important and it needs to be consistent all the way through your work. And second, as an additional point, very often a good editor, and by this I mean one that you've hired to help you rather than a commissioning editor, will help you to maintain and tune and sustain your voice in the work that you're writing. What your editor won't be able to do instantly is tell you what your voice should be. You have to find that out for yourself. But once you've got it, they'll help you to be consistent in presenting it to the readers. And coming back to the issue of dimensions often being connected, voice will have nuances across different characters. I've talked about the importance of dialogue in previous episodes, but distinctive and consistent voice for the author and their characters will keep the reader feeling secure and immersed in your story. And so I hope I've been able to give you some insight into how you can use the third stage of storytelling, that broad sweep of the development of your story from inciting incident to climax to give you the space and opportunity to enrich your work. And as a final comment, as you progress through this stage, you might feel daunted by the amount of work you have to do, by the thousands and thousands of words that you have to write down. Some of you will be familiar with the problem of the sagging middle third of your work, where you seem to run out of steam as you're writing when you get to about 30, 40, 50 percent through the book. Well, one thing that can help you as you try to juggle all of these things I've talked about in the last couple of episodes is to go back to the planning that you may have done. Now, certainly planning is a personal thing, but if you've tried some of the previous exercises I've suggested, by this stage, you should have a 15, 50 and 300 word synopsis of your story, maybe pictures of post-it notes scattered around giving you different insights into character, storyline, setting and theme and chapter and scene structure as well and these will help to guide you through the story. You'll still have to add some of the magic that I've been describing here, but your preparation and your planning will give you the waypoints to see you through. So to recap, today we've continued to look at the third stage of story structure, this time focusing on how you can attend to character, setting, theme, and voice over the course of this stage to make your work the very best that it can be. And today I have quoted from the following works and references. Dynamic Characters by Nancy Cress, published by the Writer's Digest Books. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, which is in the public domain. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, published by Virago. I've also quoted from the interview between Matt Gilliard and Chuck Wendig on the website 52 Book Reviews, which is at www.the52review.blogspot.co.uk. I've also referenced the following works, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, 1984 by George Orwell, and Traveller's Blues by Andrew J. Chamberlain. As ever, there are show notes for this episode on Pinterest. That's at www.pinterest.com. Go there and look up the Creative Writers Tool Belt, or you can get in touch with me to talk about your work or ask me a question. Uh, That's at andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com and we also have a group on goodreads you're very welcome to join us there that's www.goodreads.com look up the creative writers tool belt there the next episode will be an interview with the writer historian and speaker nick page nick has nearly 20 years of experience as a freelance writer and speaker he's published over 60 books and in the conversation he brings his wit and knowledge to bear on the subject of creative writing we'll be exploring techniques for writing comedy how to research your historical novel biography memoir and how nick has come through his own dark night of the soul by building himself a garden shed I had a great time talking to Nick. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. So that's all for this episode. Thank you again to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. (laughs) 